Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Recording live from Vancouver, British Columbia, this is The Extra Environmentalist. Hello, I'm Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. I'm just talking like the movie guy today. Yes, he is. No, no. Okay, we're going to stop that right now. I hope Seth cuts that. We're just hanging out here in Vancouver, doing the usual Vancouver thing because it's raining outside. It is raining, and that's usually what happens in Vancouver is what I found. We are on episode number seven, Justin. How do you feel about that? Man, unbelievable. I feel like every episode that comes out is far more episodes than I ever expected to publish of a podcast. Everyone after number one was just bonus. <laughs> How's your time been here in Vancouver, Seth? Vancouver is a great place with lots of fun people. I've met a lot of Justin's friends and hung out on UBC campus, which is University of British Columbia campus. Rode bikes around a whole bunch. Yesterday, I cooked up an amazing feast for Justin and his wife. Now, we just got done doing an amazing interview. Yeah, we just finished interviewing the uh, filmmakers behind When Two Worlds Collide, which is a movie documentary that's coming out next year. The story behind it is unbelievably compelling and complex regarding resource exploitation, indigenous rights, and then we even got into talking about native and indigenous spiritual practices and how that ties into the way we live as humans and even uh, the roles that we play in our society and our inability to recognize the uh, particular moment at which we live in as a rather uh, dramatic one. A lot more from the interview than we had expected, which is a great thing. Uh, quite frankly, this story isn't out at all in public awareness as far as I'm concerned, so I'm comfortable calling this an exclusive extra environmentalist. <laughs> the first extra environmental exclusive if you will. Exactly. This is where the story breaks right here. And first I, I said that and I was like, nah, that's kind of ridiculous. But when you hear this story, I was pretty compelled. It has everything. Drama, action, intrigue, emotion. Not even the story itself that the filmmakers are covering, but the story of the filmmakers covering the story <laughs> is pretty crazy. I mean, Seth and I were in, in my little basement apartment here and we're talking with the filmmakers down in, in Lima, Peru. You know, we expected to kind of have, you know, standard little interview. We had a few questions ready and, and then it just kept getting more intense and more intense and we kept looking over at each other and our eyes were bugging out and I know I had some chills shooting down my spine at one point. Kind of caught Seth and I maybe a little bit off guard but that's a good thing because it's an unbelievable story. We have a lot of podcasts to listen to. It's going to be very exciting. It's quite a, an extensive story so there's no use for us to uh, blabber on about it. We just got to let it tell itself. Alright, here we go. Alright. Seth and I are speaking with Heidi Brennerberg and Tyra Akpa in Lima, Peru. Heidi's the director of the upcoming film, Two Worlds Collide. We're going to start with some questions just to talk about the film and talk about Peru and talk about your background and how you kind of came across the story. Perfect. I would just, though, like to add that I'm co-director. I'm co-directing this film with my other colleague, Matthew Orzel. I'm half German and half Peruvian. My mother is Peruvian and my father is German. I was studying documentary film in Britain, and after completing my bachelor's, we actually got on a scholarship, which um, gave us a possibility of starting a business. So me and my two colleagues decided, well, this would be an um, amazing opportunity to maybe go abroad and research ideas for a film. And so we took off to Peru because obviously I was familiar with the place because I grew up here till I was nine years old. 
And so um, we just went on this journey. You're currently working on the upcoming When Two Worlds Collide. So how did you discover the story of Alberto Pizanko? Tell us about that story. <laughs> um, we came here on a scholarship, and we spent, I think, maybe like at least eight months researching different stories. First, we went from short stories, then we wanted to do a 30-minute piece, and then we thought about, hmm, it might be very difficult if we want to bring it onto TV. We might at least have to do a 60-minute film. So we then started further to research. And then one day I was sitting and reading the newspaper and I was reading about the free trade agreement between Peru and the United States. It basically said that the free trade agreement, basically, after that it was signed, Peru opened up the Peruvian Amazon for private investors to come in and explore and exploit for oil and gas. Before this, the Peruvian Amazon was open for private investment 30%. And then right after the free trade agreement was signed, it went straight up to 80%. So basically, they opened up almost 80% of the Peruvian Amazon just for private investment to come in for oil and gas. And we're just only talking about oil and gas. We're not even including logging. We're not even including mining and now the electric, um, hydroelectric plants. You know, if you put this all together, like we're probably way above 100%. It's going like the investment here and the possibilities on, on the natural resources is really getting out of control here in Peru. How can this go from 30% to 70% within what, months? And so um, I was just talking to my colleagues and I thought, oh, guys, I think we've got a story here. This is so important. We need to make a film about this of what's happening here because I've never even heard that there's, they're exploiting uh, for oil and gas in the Amazon rainforest really happening here, you know. we This is, this is crazy. So um, we then started researching more of what's happening and more about the politics and more about the free trade, etc. And we then um, started to actually film extensively in the rainforest. Really didn't have any idea what we were really doing. And we slowly kind of fall into really understanding the true realities that's facing this part of the world. I mean, you know and you hear about it, but really seeing it and feeling it is a complete different thing. Then, obviously, we got a small little one-minute or two-minute little taster done, and we sent it to uh, finance institutions, and then some of them rejected our applications, and they were saying, well... You know, we don't want this to be interview-based. We want this to be a, a story about people. Then we thought, okay, we, we, need to, we need to find a character. We need to look into this. So then again, we started researching again because we wanted to be a very interesting character. We wanted someone that really had something to offer that was passionate about what's happening in the rainforest. So one day, after a few months of really getting nowhere with finding someone that will be leading the story, I made the decision to go to Iquitos, where I've heard that all indigenous leaders from the Peruvian Amazon would be gathering there to be electing their new leader, which at that time was already Alberto Pisango, and there were the talks that he would be re-elected again. And so I thought, oh, well, this is perfect. You know, this could be, you know, I, I will be interviewing people, I'll be meeting leaders, and maybe there's someone that I feel, well, that's it. So then I went to Iquitas, and there I saw and met Alberto Pisango, and he instantly captivated me. It's just, you know, his presence, the way he talked about it, you could really see this is a man who is fearless. He was passionate about and he was true to what he, he stands for. So I went up to him and I talked and, you know, I said to him, do you think you're going to be reelected? And he said to me, yes, I pretty much do think so that I will be reelected. And I said to him, well, do you really want to take on this job again? And he says, look at me, I have no other choice because even here with my own people, 
not all of them are true to what they stand for. And out of like 100 people here, I only trust a few. And he was telling me, you know, I would much rather go back to my family because it's a very extensive job that he takes on. You know, he's 24-7 trying to represent his people's rights and defend their rights and their ancestral lands. And it's like a constant and everyday battle. He was telling me, oh, he would like just to take a break and go away and go back to his family because he lives away from his family. He lives in Lima. And that's like, what, hundreds of miles away from where he's actually from. So I really felt very compelled by him and, and I could really see how he loves what he does, but it's also painful for him because he gives up his world too, to be living our world. and But that's because he wants to protect his world. So, you know, that really, I have to say, I've had great respect for him. And I trusted instantly what he was about because I could tell he was saying the truth. There isn't any other person I trust. And I trust myself to be continuing this mission. And NGOs were expecting also from him to be continuing his mission because they, he was one of the leaders they really truly trusted. And that was before everything happened with the incidents in Bagua. I came back to Lima and I told my colleagues, okay, I think I got, I got the man. I think he's the perfect person to be bringing us and telling us about their world to make us understand what's really happening out here. And only like a few months later, he invited me to come along um, after we've had this talk. Um, he invited us to come along to, to join him and also see you know, who he is because he also wanted to see who we are. He didn't want just to trust anyone or any filmmaker. He wanted to see what our intentions are. What's also very interesting about Alberto Pisago is he's not just a leader. He's also a spiritual guide. And he was mastering the plant of ayahuasca. So um, he invited us to come along and experience this ayahuasca ritual and also get to learn his master, his spiritual guide, because at that time he was still in training. During this time, we had the chance to see more of who is Alberto Pisango and what he's about. And we saw that this man really is right there in his roots. He really represents what he stands for. I can only say that we really just fell into the story because after that trip, I think uh, two months later, everything here in Lima went out of control. I'm sure you heard about that, right? No, we hadn't heard about that. Could you go into a little bit more detail about what happened in Bagua? After we traveled with Alberto in the rainforest two months later, a protest started. And he already told us then that, look, our people... Soon they will be protesting because of the new laws that the government brought out that's benefiting private investment and state and taking away their rights to their ancestral lands. You know, it just they wanted to make it easier for for uh, corporations to come in and basically take over their land. So he said to me on that uh, that time when we went to the rainforest. Within a month, we're all going to come together and we're going to start a very passive protest to make the people aware of what's happening out there and dialogue with the government that they need to annul those laws that are really not benefiting our lives. It's benefiting private corporations. Well, when he said that, a month later or two months later, this protest began. They were protesting for, I think, over 50 days. And it was, it's honestly, it's so sad what happened. And it's very unfortunate, too. And they only really were trying to stand for their rights because the government had no right because after they signed a free trade agreement, it brought out these new laws just to fit the free trade agreement and to make it easier for corporations to come in Peru and invest. 
they were only really trying to defend their rights because they were going against the international agreements about indigenous people, the protection about indigenous people. When they started this protest 55 days, they gathered in a place called Curva del Diablo, where 5,000 indigenous people were uh, protesting exactly 55 days. Meanwhile, Alberto was discussing with the government the laws, and he was presenting their proposition that they needed to either change the law and make it fit to the requirements of the indigenous people. This was happening in Lima. Alberto was in Lima trying to talk with the government. Uh, we accompanied him almost every day to these meetings, and it was really exhausting to see him because they weren't really going anywhere with dialogues, nowhere. It was like sometimes they made him wait for hours and then the minister would just say, oh, you have to come tomorrow. They just basically weren't given much interest to the case. After a while, the indigenous people, they were still there. They were still protesting. They weren't giving up. The Peruvian government called a state of emergency, which upset the indigenous population very much. The president, Alan Garcia, was calling them. What right do they have to be claiming their lands? The lands of Amazon belongs to all Peruvians, not just a handful of indigenous people. They don't even form first class. They're third class. You know, what do they have to say? We want this country to develop. We want this country to take advantage of the natural resources, which is the only way to bring this country forward. So, you know, he, he just wasn't really talking to his people. He was accusing them of them being an obstacle to development, which was very hurtful for the indigenous people. And that made them even not to give up their battle to be heard, you know, about what their rights are. After a while, I guess the Peruvian government had enough and they decided to just open up the roads because also it was bringing Lima to a standstill. It was just all the roads were closed up, they were blocked, the rivers were blocked as well, where oil was transported. There were like no bananas, there weren't limes, you know, everything that came from the rainforest was basically being held over there. That's why the government called it a state of emergency. I had a rough day, but that's life, it happens. Woke up on the dark side of my mattress. I guess I forgot to set my clock. Overslept, almost lost the job. Been to top it off, I'm kind of hungry. But can't eat till I find my money. It's in my wallet, but my wallet ain't in my pocket. Can't remember the last time I saw it. And they don't want me in a bad mood. Afraid that it'll spread never After a while, obviously, the government had enough, and then they decided, okay, what, enough is enough. When did all this happen? Because I haven't heard anything about this. This was June 5. It was last year. After the indigenous people were protesting for 55 days, the government decided to just bring this to a halt because what enough for them was enough. At the Cuba del Diablo and uh, helicopters and special forces to open up the roads and what Indigenous people say is that they were surrounded at like 3, 4 in the morning and they didn't know what was happening and all of a sudden they heard gunshots and then from then on everything went out of control. Indigenous people got killed at the Cuba del Diablo and I guess also the Indigenous people might have took the weapons of the police. You know, it just went completely out of control right, to protect chaos. The sad thing is that the local police had an agreement with the indigenous people. They signed, actually, an agreement. That Friday, on the 5th of June, they were actually going to retreat at 10 in the morning. They signed an agreement. The police also said that if anything should happen, they would be informed if they would have to retreat before that time. But at 4 o'clock in the morning, the special forces arrived and started to shoot you know no one really knows what happened but as indigenous people say is that the police basically started to fire and this just ended up in a complete chaos there were also indigenous people protesting at a pumping station number six and they basically shut the whole pumping station down and there were police people there during that time 
basically guarding the pumping station. And they also signed an agreement with the indigenous people that the indigenous people are not going to vandalize or anything and that the police won't do anything about it as long as they respect the property. And as the indigenous people said, well, we're only protesting passive. There were like 23 policemen at that pumping station number six. And when the news traveled from the Cuba de Diablo that their brothers have been killed, they took the police hostages, took, took their weapons and killed them. The police killed their people and so someone had to pay for it. The thing is that these, these indigenous people, they are one piece and they are very known of being guerreros, warriors. They fought in cases like this, it's about eye to eye. You know, they don't hesitate. If you kill one of them, they kill one of you. This is what happened in pumping station number six. The sad thing is that the police that were there and that were guarding pumping station had no idea that the government was actually sending special forces to open up the roads at four or five in the morning. And obviously, because they signed an agreement with the indigenous people, the indigenous people felt they were betrayed. This was just all like a play. And meanwhile, their brothers were got killed. So where were you and your crew during these events? We were with Alberto Pisango. We were following him because he, at that time, was still going to Congress. He was trying to talk to the government. He was trying to make them, look, you need to annul those laws because we have the right to our lands. You need to listen to the people, or at least we need to come to an agreement to change the law so it's it's fair for all of us. But they weren't listening. So meanwhile, Alberto Pisanga was on the ground in Lima trying to bring those laws to be annulled whilst everything else was happening in the Amazon rainforest because he was a leader of his people. He obviously got accused of instigating all this and he got accused of the mastermind behind all the killings of Bagua. Hence why he was then forced into exile. He was the most wanted man in Peru after after the policeman got killed, I remember one morning I, I woke up and then I put the news on and all of a sudden I see, oh, Alberto Pisango, oh, what's, oh my God. And then we found out that policemen got killed in pumping station number six, that the indigenous people killed them out of revenge. And then they were classed as salvages, as even as terrorists. Alberto Pisango was like, you could see his face. And there was this propaganda going, flashing on the TV, him, terrorists. He's been instigating a massacre. All eyes were on Alberto Pisango. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. He wasn't even there. He's in Lima. He was trying to sort out for these laws to be annulled. You know, he wasn't calling his people to do this or do that. You know, he had nothing to do with this. How did he react to being classified as a terrorist? Was he very shocked and surprised? No, we weren't actually then there with him when this came out in the news. Actually, by that time, we went to the IDESAP office where he works because we heard about what's happening and he was giving a press conference at that time. Hundreds of journalists were outside his office waiting for that press conference. Meanwhile, we were right inside in the office while everyone was outside and we were basically filming the press conference. And then after that, we followed him and he was upstairs. He was discussing something with his people of what they're going to be doing next. He then had to escape because he had order of detention while he was giving the press conference. So any minute, the, the police would be arriving at the IDESAP office, taking him to prison. You know, so we were there right then where he was saying this, and we witnessed when he actually escaped from the office and then went into hiding. So what was so, it like to be on both sides of that story? Because you knew the man and you had been following around and seeing his actions and then suddenly to wake up and see on the news like, ah, he's a terrorist, you know, he's instigating this violence. How were you feeling in that moment? Well, to be honest, for us, I, I felt like, well, this isn't happening. You know, it's like, I mean, you always think, yeah, you hear media manipulates things, but it's sometimes really so hard to believe it. But here, when we, we saw this in the news, I felt like, oh, my God, this is really true. The media manipulates it. 
I can't believe it. I'm living it right now. It felt like surreal. It, it, just, it was crazy. It was crazy. Also, like, I was scared and I was also really sad and very emotional about what could happen to Alberto because we just traveled in the rainforest. We got to know him. Uh, when I met him, I could see the truth behind his mission. He wasn't just wanting to for this to happen. He really wanted to bring awareness of what's happening down here. And he wants the people to listen that they have the rights to their ancestral lands. So it was heartbreaking to see how someone like this can fall into such a crazy story just because he was trying to defend the most precious wonders of the world. And this is the price that he has to pay. That alone, like knowing this, felt for us so surreal. It wasn't. It wasn't right. It was. It was really sad. Very sad. And we're. We were in shock. We were in shock. Yeah, we didn't know. Is this really real? Is it really happening? Like we're following. It. It's happening to him, and it felt like it was somebody who's part of our family that was going through this and everything he was going through, we were feeling it with him. I mean, we just tried to capture as much as we could whilst before he was sent into exile. Yeah, we had the chance to see and get to know him a little bit before all of this happened. And we also went off on this journey with him to meet his spiritual master and also got to see how really, you know, he takes the indigenous world and whatever is by on very seriously he feels it really with all his heart he's really in there you know alone that he does this ayahuasca and he goes into the spiritual world and he wants to you know he gets in contact with his ancestors so this whole experience and seeing that it just made this documentary to be something we it wasn't it this wasn't a story anymore this became for us a mission and a mission to shed light of what's happening out here to make people understand what it is the importance of indigenous people who are really often acting in this selfless act and are risking their lives and their freedom because they want to protect their ancestral lands, but they also understand that this is our future for all of us. You know, we depend on the Amazon rainforest. For Alberto to bear this burden of, uh, you know, being accused as a terrorist and to, you know, go into exile now and, and basically take responsibility for all of the indigenous in this movement in Peru. You mentioned a little bit about his spirituality and his holistic core as a person. Tell us a little bit about ayahuasca and in the ceremony and anything you've seen regarding the ceremony. Whoa, it's a very complex. Um, <laughs> That's fine. We can unravel it a little bit at a time. I am sure that you heard about the ayahuasca. It's like an ancient traditional medicine plant for the indigenous people of the Amazon rainforest, and is extracted from a wine. It's is a root. It's like a wine and. This mixed with some other leaves basically creates the ayahuasca, which is a hallucinogenic drink and makes you enter into the world. It enables you to enter a spiritual world. But what is his kind of ritual um, interaction with ayahuasca? He does this very frequently. It's very difficult to explain. It's a different world than the world we know. And I guess he, because I asked him once, so what is ayahuasca? What does it mean? I don't understand what it does to you. And he, he said to me, Heidi, imagine, okay, imagine you, you want to learn about something. And it's like a chip that's while you are in this spiritual session, you want to know and learn about something. Well, it's like a chip that's been put into your head. And then you download all the information you need to know about a certain plant or about a certain illness that you want to try and cure. I know it sounds crazy. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it just really depends if people believe in it or not. But I also sometimes wonder, how are the medicine men, where do they get this knowledge from in healing illnesses? This is what I sometimes wonder, because there's thousands of plants out there, so they must have gotten that knowledge of how to use it from somewhere. And Alberto explains this to me, well, this is how they got it. It's like they put a chip in their head and download the information of what this and this and this and this, this is for and how to use it. 
and they answer with that they get in contact with what he tells me with other medicine men and I don't know it's it's completely other world that I don't know it's very hard for other people to understand before that I thought uh huh okay mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know really what to think of it Cuz they came out of the sunshine the flowers nestled in their hair See they've been stumbling on the back streets honey I won't give in No I won't give in Cuz my love's not a limit Did Alberto invite you to partake in the ceremony with him? Of course. This is why we went to the jungle because it was also medium for him to see that's before everything happened in Bagua. He wanted to know who we are and this was the test for him and for us it was a test whether he could see within his visions and by taking ayahuasca he could see and look at it into our ourselves and see whether we are really behind this because our own interest or because we care you're in this completely different environment you're about to take a powerful hallucinogen yeah. i tell you i'm really like not a person that i've never really taken drugs nor like lsd nothing like this i've I mean i drink you know and then occasionally sometimes i smoke a joint but that basically doesn't happen very often you know knowing this for me i was just like whoa okay i didn't know you're doing this complete crazy thing i have no idea what to think of it for as i was nervous cuz i was like okay what about what if i lose my mind or something you know <laughs> like i'm not used to this sort of thing and i was pretty much nervous and i was also wondering oh i wonder what alberto sanga might see in us you know <laughs> It turned out to be pretty interesting and since I've been basically with Alberto Pisango in exile it was actually the ayahuasca plant that's what he told me when he escaped out of the window while we were at the office where he works I didn't hear of him for days we weren't allowed to know where he is I was trying to find out I was wanting to film him how he feels what's going on with him because we had no idea where he was he basically disappeared and in the news they were saying yes Alberto Pisango has fled to Bolivia he's out of the country but then we heard from some other sources that he's still in Peru he's actually not gone to Bolivia he's just trying to find a way to protect himself he found exile in the Nicaraguan embassy and i had no idea oh my god what are we going to do you know Alberto Pisango is gone. How are we going to um, continue the film? What, what are we going to do? And I said to my colleagues, we have to follow him. We have to go with him in exile. You know, we got to continue the story. But I wasn't sure whether that's what he wanted because he's in such a delicate situation. And, you know, the last thing I wanted him is to be followed by camera. But then I received this phone call from him and he told me, well, I've, took ayahuasca and I've had these vision and I've been given three things precious thing that I have to take with me and one of them is you you have to accompany me when I go into exile I want you to be and witness what I will have to go through I, this is very important this was his decision I didn't even ask him he called me and he says I want you to come with me there I was getting ready one morning one of his oh, his helpers called and he says okay today he's going to be leaving he's going to go into exile so me and Tara she got me ready all our equipment packed then i was on the plane with them basically going to nicaragua yeah it was crazy, crazy. <laughs> and so i had the chance in nicaragua to even more understand who this man is, what his past is, and what his destiny is, and what makes him be a leader and what is it that drives people to put themselves out there. What is it that shapes a leader? And during this time in exile, I really came to learn what is it that shaped him to become the leader of his people and what it was that keeps him going to continue his mission. At that time also he basically invited me to do ayahuasca several times so since then i probably have been doing it 
very frequently. I have to say it's an incredible experience. How did you feel when you got that phone call and he told you that you were one of the three most precious things in his life? Well, first, I didn't know what to think about it. It was just like, oh, wow, so this is serious. He must see in us something of what we do and what we want to do with this film, that he trusts us to accompany him. We felt in some ways honored to be able to accompany him while he has to go through all of this. It was very emotional, I have to say that. And everything happened so fast at that time that we didn't really even have the chance to think. We were just doing everything that that was just happening. We were just trying to capture everything that was going on. Matthew went to Bagua to film the aftermath. While I was getting ready to accompany Alberto, my other colleague was going to Bagua to film the aftermath Mm -hmm. and, you know, getting reports of eyewitness of what really happened out there and what, you know, of a woman that lost their husbands and um, obviously other people that got wounded and were in hospitals. So we were all like multi-located and trying to do everything all at once and everything was happening all at once with what was going on in the news. We had to follow that. We had to follow and find out what was going on with Alberto, how we're going to follow him. When is his flight going to be? Where is he going to go? We didn't know anything. We had to be so fast to just capture everything and we really tried to do our best and we're only three people down here trying to do it all (laughs) and we were like oh my god i don't know we're gonna fall apart like doing all this and we didn't even have time to think we just did it let's just put it that way justin our head was spinning (laughs) and it sometimes still spins you know yeah like a constant But we were ready. We were ready. If they were going to call us five, three o'clock in the morning, you need to go on that flight. We were ready. We were prepared for everything. And we didn't even think about our safety at that time. We were just thinking, my God, you know, if this Alberta can go through this, if he can, we have to be with him. We, We have to tell this story, you know. We have to take on this journey, and we just had to. So we've been on it ever since. What was it like to be in exile in this situation? Because, you know, you risk the possibility of being discovered by the proving government. And Yeah, it was hence why, Justin, we haven't gone public with this film or haven't gone viral at all. We, we just recently really have set up a Facebook and in the Indiegogo page because it was such a sense political subject. We were aware of the sensitivity of the subject. When I was in exile with Alberto Tara was here by herself and sometimes she was a little scared because we don't know whether already people know what we're doing. Um, I was concerned of her being by her own in the house, you know, also because we had the footage here and et cetera, et cetera. And when I was in exile with Alberto, yeah, I was concerned. I was pretty much living the same life as Alberto did, except that some I would go outside in the evenings and I would go running because I needed that. Otherwise, I don't. And then sometimes I would go out, you know, just to go to the supermarket or get something. But I would try to really keep myself invisible and not hang outside or anything like that because I don't know who is following uh, me. I don't know whether anyone was already observing me. I would be running around the neighborhood at night and I would just be feeling, oh, I wonder (laughs) whether they could do something. Living with someone in exile, you get to know the heart of someone and you also get very close to a person. And that also can be dangerous. And and I know that, you know, we know that. What we do is nothing, you know, in compare to what a man like Alberto Pisango does. He puts himself out there. I, I don't feel it. it's a big deal of what other people have to go through. So you were talking about an ethical feeling of telling the whole story, but at the same time, a responsibility to tell Albert's side of the story. How did you balance those two sides? And do you feel like that the story you came out with was more of an insight into Bazango's head or more of a story of like the whole picture? It is at the moment a story more about 
Kisanga's head and what he represents. But we do want to give also the, the bigger picture. We want to balance, and this story will be balanced out by, tell, by looking at the bigger picture of it all. It's not just about a man, it's also about his people. You know, I don't want this, he comes across all like he's a hero. I don't want to, we have to be careful in how we represent him within this film. And so it's very important that we balance it out by also telling the other side of what the Peruvian people think, why development is important for the country and also talking to economists and et cetera, et cetera. So it's important to balance it out. We have to understand both sides to be able to also to be objective on this. But it's very hard if you really know the truth of it. Backtracking just a little bit, I was wondering if, if you could maybe tell us a little bit about your ayahuasca experience was like, just because I'm curious, if it's too personal in detail, that's fine. We don't have to talk about it. Where would I start? My experience was basically, in the beginning, I couldn't really see much, and I was questioning Alberto, well, what is it that you see? I don't understand. Like, what visions? Like, what is it? And then, I, like I told you, he explained to me, well, it's like a chip. It's just imagining it's like a chip, and you download information. And then, so I started to think about that. Mm-hmm, okay, interesting. Let's see whether, whether this can happen to me. <laughs> So on my next session, you know, every session you get better because you understand it and you also learn how to control yourself and what you're thinking about and what you're focusing on. One of the first sessions when I was in Nicaragua with him in exile, I went on a self-exploration trip on a journey. It's like a provided what I saw is like you're going to school and then you sit down in, in class and you just listen to the teacher or to a voice that's telling you, okay, so the reason why you feel this way is because of some so, so reasons. This is what happens to you in the past. So it basically lays out all these images of things that happened during your lifetime that sometimes shapes you in the way you become and whether it can be good or whether it can be bad. And it makes you especially aware of the negative side of you that you have to correct. So it's it's really like a self-exploration trip and to understand yourself better and have the possibility to see the negative sides of your own person. Because often we don't look at it. We see ourselves very great and because it's sometimes too difficult to correct those little things that... We all have, we're all not perfect, we all have mistakes, we always sometimes react inappropriate and sometimes very hard to be working on these things. And the ayahuasca plant makes you aware that you do have to work towards this, not perfection, but to become a better person and therefore also be dealing with everyday life in a better way. That was one of my ayahuasca, a few um, sessions I've had that was specific about this about understanding myself learning how I can change then also um, other sessions it then after I've completed this the self-exploration and a better understanding of myself I went to another stage which was showing me what's happening out there in the world I don't know if people believe in it, but... Well, it's um, an experiential yeah. thing, right? It's, it's easy to, to sit back if uh, yes. you've never had one of these experiences and question yes. it, obviously. And from a common Westerner background, at least in dealing with these matters, you can't really imagine what it's like or you question it. And then experiencing it is a completely different thing. Yeah, it's a completely different thing. One of the reason, other reasons I've had is basically showing you what is happening out there and they're showing you like a film you're basically sitting there and you're watching a movie you're watching the world unfolding everyday life and one of the visions i've had was i was seeing a lot of dead people a lot of killings a lot of blood a lot of hidden wars that we don't see we don't hear we don't feel because it's not it's not shown And then I realized, wow, there's so much happening out there that we don't know about. Whatever voice there is tells you then, oh, well, this is just one part, you know. Look at what's happening everywhere. And then it showed me materialism, how we are distracted in this whole consumerism idea and the whole system that makes you not see 
what is really happening here. I could hear another voice kind of saying, this really, look at this, this is the majority of people that are living a life like this. How is going there to be changed? And it's like I was fighting with that voice, you know, look, there are people who care. There are people that scientists, there are people like me who are trying to bring awareness to this, who are trying to make people aware and look around of what's happening so they don't get lost in this whole system that that the government set up there, this superficial world. It's like an energy that's kind of saying there's only so much time left and if people don't wake up, they don't start looking beyond it, there won't be much time. And it could basically be a very sad ending to what can happen to the world. There aren't just enough natural resources left of what we can live from. Some intense visions. I, I think you can also really feel that what's happening out there, I feel. There are not many people I can talk to like this. I can talk to you about it, but there aren't many people that I can talk like this. And that's that you feel like, there are a lot of them, but it's not the mainstream crowd, if you know what I mean. The mainstream crowd don't understand, they watch TV, and, you know, I don't blame them because they don't have time. They work, they, they don't have time to relax, you're just working to fit that system every day. And it's for them, themselves, a battle, because they also have to survive and paying this and paying that. So they don't have the time, and that's the mainstream, so... And that's what also I could see in, in the ayahuasca vision, that sadly the system is has created these slaves in some ways. And we forget to look beyond it. And if it continues like this, it will affect our environment and it will eventually affect the world. Nature will show and, and will react to it, which it is already doing. What you were saying that, you know, this isn't the mainstream view of the world or view of what human actions are. I think there's not a lot of us, but it's a growing number. It's not the overarching kind of thought of the world, but, uh, you know, we're getting there. And that's what uh, films like yours are doing is building that awareness. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why we're doing this, because it is important. I hope that we can work towards the mainstream for us to think in this way, because if it doesn't happen, there isn't really that much time. You've talked about all those themes that you've seen in this small little microcosm in Peru. How are you incorporating them into your movie and how are you helping to bring those out in the storyline? Is that something that you're going to try to bring out in the movie? We're observers of the world. We observe the Peruvian people and I think it's very important to also show them in the film that they're not acting. They're becoming more and more and more part of this consumerism and materialism because obviously the country is experiencing an economic boom. And I think it's very important to also show the audience that this is what's happening with the Peruvian people and this is what's happening to the indigenous people. You know, how can those both visions all those worlds come together to be able to save the future of the Amazon rainforest, you know. And I think a film like this um, will help people to look at it from a different perspective. What do you see for the future of, of the story of Alberto and then for the, the future of your film? What's kind of the next steps? Since Alberto Pisango, you know Alberto Pisango has returned from Excel. And so since he's been here, he's out on bail. He has a 20-year prison sentence, though, looming over his head because of accusations of sedition, conspiracy, insurrection, and so on. And whilst he's on bail right now, he has learned recently that he's been nominated by his people to run as their presidential candidate for the 2011 Peruvian elections. Our goal is now to be following what could be a very potential historic move. This story is actually in constant development. So 
I couldn't tell you what the end will be. We don't know. You know, we'll, how, we, how do you decide where to cut the story I, off? Because, I mean, these are people's lives, right? So it just keeps going, and eventually you yes. have to cut it and say, all right, this is the yes. content of the of film. Course. I think we will be cutting it after the 2011 elections. We'll be following Alberta's campaign. And also, we still have a lot of things to capture because we only got one first part of the story. Now we need to also Alberto to meet other indigenous leaders whilst he will be traveling to Brazil, Venezuela and Ecuador to meet leaders like him who are actually doing exactly the same thing as he does. And through that, basically also introducing the bigger picture of what's happening, not just in Peru. It's not just about Peru, it's about the whole of the Amazon and also what's happening in Brazil and other parts of the Amazon rainforest. It just really, really depends now how this is going to evolve with Alberto Pistango running for running as a presidential candidate. And then from there, we're going to think of where are we going to cut the story to an end. We might just have to leave it at a cliffhanger. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be very exciting, you know, as soon as we go to the editing suite. (laughs) We can promise you. It'll be exciting. (laughs) It'll be very exciting, yes. Very exciting. Yeah, as an editor, I know how hard it is to cut stuff from a film that has that compelling story like that. I have to say, I'm very excited. Yeah, something new is happening all the time. Like, there's something new to add almost every week to this film. And we just don't, right now, we don't have the funds to be capturing everything. So that's why we've launched the Indiegogo site to try to get us the funding so we can start, you know, capturing this potential historic move with Alberto, go to Cancun and film, film the scientists there, find out what's going to be going on with our climate future, film other characters that we're going to be meeting, just go from there. And we really hope that we can raise the funds, the Indiegogo page, to try to get this film moving. So listeners can get involved with this story through the Indiegogo site. Are there any other methods or websites that people can follow or go to for more information? Well, right now what we really want is to build up on our Indiegogo campaign. That's most important for us right now. And what they can do, they can go there, they can donate. They can't donate, they can post it on their Facebook, Twitter, write about it on their blogs, put it on their website add the Indiegogo page as their favorite on StumbleUpon. Just share it with as many people as they can. Talk to their family, their friends about it. Like the When Two Worlds Collide fan book page. Get our film featured by clicking on the feature page on Indiegogo. Our most important thing right now is the Indiegogo campaign because we know that we can get the funds from that. And we know when we do get the funds that we're asking for, we're going to be able to film everything that's going to be going on We need to start filming now. And so if people can go on there and people can just share it or donate to it and just put it out there to as many people as they can, put it, talk about it on their student radio, just share it with as many people as they can to try and help us get this film going, you know, and be co-creators with us and make it all happen. And how can listeners find the Indiegogo site? They can go to our Indiegogo page. We have a special link for it, www.indiegogo.com, and then they click When Two Worlds Collide. And basically, it's a crowdfunding site where people can go and they can fund as much as they want, from $5 up to as much as they can afford. And if they can't afford anything, like I said, if they just share it with people, they share it with people that might you know, want to donate to it. We'll definitely link to it in our show notes on our description of this episode of the podcast, and we'll mention the URL at least several times. Perfect. Yeah, that would just help us so much. (laughs) It's very important, Justin. we got to make this film. We have to bring this film to a completion. (laughs) Yeah. It's also very important because through this film, we also will show the truth about Alberto Pisango, you know, who he is, what made him to become a leader, and why he does it, you know, because right now, obviously, he's portrayed in the Peruvian media, especially as this instigator of the massacre of Bagua, and no one really knows the true face of him. 
will be able to show just that. And we want the world to, um, you know, keep their eyes on him so he does receive a fair trial. We don't want him to just, nobody watching over what's going to be happening to him and what he might have to face. We've been very passionate about this film, we, hence why we've been, been dedicating and making this film for the past two years, really. And we really truly believe in this and we feel it's very important. We also believe that what's happening in the rainforest and what's happening with the people, it's not ethically right. It's not ethically right for them and it's not ethically right for our future. And that's something that we really have to understand. What kind of equipment are you guys using? What are you shooting on and what are you capturing audio with? And then what are you going to edit with? Mm -hmm. uh, we're capturing on, a, on high definition the Panasonic P2. Well, that's like for now. Later on, I do would like to get some other equipment, more high definition and better stuff. But for now, we've been filming on high def since the story really started. And you said you had three cameras and everyone's kind of going around shooting their own thing? And we've been keeping it very simple because we haven't had a high budget, so we don't have a sound man, we don't have an editor, which we really need. Everything's been done by us. We're the multitask team. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to set up actually a bigger production crew because I feel that's very important. So we can also just focus on the story too because right now we have to think of you know funding we have to think of this and of that and it sometimes like takes you away from coming back to the story and developing it more it distracts you so i would like to just be me you know just focusing on the story focusing on alberto and his people and the whole bigger picture of the amazon so i hope when funding comes through we'll be able to do just that. We also want to get POD's work working on this, get some nice sweet camera to be able to capture some amazing shots from the Amazon rainforest because I feel it's really about how you capture it that it's going to make people be able to feel it. That's something for us to create. Any final thoughts you want to leave us with uh, before we, we wrap up? It's our Indiegogo page. <laughs> Thanks so much, Heidi and Tyra, and it's really an incredible story. I mean, just the fact that I've never I never heard of anything that happened around Lima or any of these, the massacre or any anything like this. It's an unbelievable story. I know, this subject, we could be talking about this film forever, <laughs> Dustin. I totally get you. I mean, it's there's so many aspects to this film. There's so many, like, ways to explore it as well you know that's why I, we feel it, this film has such an incredible potential you know and it really will depend how we develop it further that's why we believe in it it has a very strong story with a very strong message I hope you get some really good music oh yeah, yeah we music will it's <laughs> very important essential very essential. So we won't take up any more of your time today. Really, thank you again. We'll definitely want to hear more as things develop. Hopefully we'll get a chance to check back in with you uh, maybe in a few months to see how things are going. I think wow is, is the word to describe there. We didn't know anything about this story and its connection to indigenous religious practices through hallucinogens or that Alberto Pizango was going to jump out the window at a press conference. That and, stuff came out of nowhere. Yeah, and then call these filmmakers and say, you know, I saw three things that I need and one of them is, is you making this film with me. <laughs> to be someone and get a call like that would just be mind-blowing. I, I don't even know how I would approach a situation like that. Just the gravity of it, knowing that here's this guy, he's incredibly spiritually connected, he's incredibly connected in his community, he's fighting for the very lives of these people, and then have him call me from exile and say, come with me, tell the story, it's important. I feel a little bit of gravity just having to tell the story of the people who are telling the story. It's like a, a whole additional level of gravity that has now fallen from Peru on top of the Extra Environmentalist podcast. I've been definitely impressed by what Heidi and Tyra are, are doing down there in Peru. So any way that you can support them is absolutely incredible to get the story out. One, 
listening to this podcast, but since you're listening to this, you already have. Two, definitely share this podcast with your friends and your family, so that way they can also hear the story. Three, and perhaps most importantly, link to the Indiegogo site, donate some money, just chip in five, ten bucks. You know, it's hardly anything for us, but it all adds up for them, and it just ultimately helps to build awareness. Yeah, and you could be in their film credits. Everyone needs a film credit here and there. Yeah, you can put that on your resume. Exactly. And if you like The Extra Environmentalist, you can again find us at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. Email us at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com or call us at 919-701-XTRA. Leave us a voicemail with your thoughts, your criticisms, your suggestions, or just break into glossolalia and make some mouth noises, and we'll find a way to incorporate that into the show. We really like mouth noises. The more exotic, the better. I have a competition going with Justin's wife, Jane, to make the funniest mouth noise when we wake up in the morning. So yeah, play an instrument, uh, give us a serenade, whatever it is, just do it over the phone or Skype on our voicemail inbox. Tell us a joke. Be sure to check out our show notes for links to all the great stuff we always talk about in the episode. These show notes will definitely include a link to the Indiegogo site and some more information about when two worlds collide. And then also, you know, check out the music that we play during the show. There's so many great artists who put this music out on music blogs. And check out the music blogs and then support the artists ultimately because it's really incredible. That'll end it up for uh, episode number seven. Check us out next episode. We should maybe consider episode number eight being live from Peru. Live from Peru. So you might hear that on our next episode. <laughs> live from Peru. There you go, Seth. All I right. can do it too. Stay well, take care of each other, and enjoy life. Hey, Seth and Justin. This is Nick. Seth, you know me, Justin, I guess we've never met. But I just listened to, I guess, episode five of y'all's podcast about Santa Moth, I thought it was pretty interesting. I didn't quite make it through the uh, entire discussion portion of David's talk, but I thought it was pretty interesting. So uh, good work, guys, and uh, keep it up. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.